One of the most instinctual emotions in the human experience is our natural drive towards vengeance. There is this indescribable desire to see the bad guy get what's coming to him. Many of the most famous books and movies of all time have garnered their audience by playing to these base instincts for revenge. Books, television, movies, music, so much of it is just about getting even or getting satisfaction through revenge. Even some of my favorite books like The Count of Monte Cristo, what is it about? Vengeance. What about the song that says, I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive and carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights and slashed a hole in all four tires. And maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Vengeance. Did he deserve it? Yes. Was it handled correctly? No. Today, what we are going to do is see how Scripture has much to say about vengeance And we are going to see how we can be both compassionate towards our enemies and satisfied by the vengeance of God. Let me read for you the chapter that we're looking at in its entirety, Isaiah chapter 63. Follow along in your own copy of scriptures as I read, this is God's word. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like those who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness of the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely these are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put the midst of them, in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest." 
So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion, are held back from me? For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden your heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Let me just ask that the Lord would bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Our Father, as we come together to a text that is intense, a text that is dangerous, a text that describes you in ways that many might be uncomfortable with, God, I pray that as we come before you today and hear your word this morning, that we will humble ourselves before you and that we will hear what you have to teach us, that we will lay down our own preconceived notions and receive those that you give us in the scripture. And God, I pray that today, that if there is any in this room who is currently rebelling against you, that this would be a way that you draw them to yourself. And I pray, God, that for those who are in you, who are confused about how to respond when they are mistreated, that this text would be a beneficial one for them, where we will understand that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Father God, I ask that today would be a time where we see Jesus clearly and that we would be enraptured by the mighty Savior that he is. We ask this in his precious and holy name. Amen. Typically, what I attempt to do when going through a chapter is I attempt to cover as much of the information there as possible. What I try to do is I try to give you a thorough understanding of all that's going on there. And I will just give you a spoiler alert. I cannot do that today because of how much we're going to have to cover. And so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to spend the majority of our time focusing in on the first six verses and what they have to teach us about the nature and character of God. And in doing so, we are going to be stepping both backwards in the Old Testament and forward into the New to see how this concept relates to itself and explains the nature of God throughout the Scriptures. And we're going to do that by setting forth various questions. Our first question that we are going to ask of the text today is, what is vengeance? Clearly, it speaks of vengeance in the first six verses of this chapter, speaking of God as a God of vengeance. Well, in one sense, it's not difficult for me to answer what vengeance is because we have all certainly felt the drive toward vengeance. We have all experienced the emotion behind it. But one of the best ways to understand what something is is to begin to strip away the things that it is not. Vengeance, for example, is not hatred. Hatred is the total opposition and the absolute hostility towards a person or a thing. Hatred can exist towards somebody even if they don't deserve it. Because of our sin nature, we divide. We find all sorts of ways to cause dissension and all sorts of ways that are illegitimate. Some people hate based on jealousy. Well, that guy has the job I want, therefore I hate him. That person has the house I want, therefore I hate him. 
We hate for jealous reasons. Some people hate because of racial prejudice. That person does not look like me. That person does not speak like me. That person is not from the same country as me. Therefore, I hate them. Or you might hate someone because of the team that they root for, whether we're talking about sports or armies. In other words, there are times that we hate people that is undeserved. Vengeance, on the other hand, can only exist if somebody has earned it. The concept of vengeance can only exist if there has first been an offense. There can be no revenge unless there has first been a crime. So vengeance is not just the infliction of harm or humiliation on a person. It is the infliction of harm or humiliation as a return for wrongdoing. Vengeance is also not the same thing as anger or wrath. If you look again to verse 3, you will see that it says, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Now we're going to circle back to the imagery of that, to the metaphor of that later on. But for now, I just want you to see that vengeance is not the same thing as anger or wrath. Rather, it is the necessary end of God's anger or wrath. It is the product of his anger or wrath. It is the satisfaction. It is the action that finalizes his anger or wrath. In other words, anger and wrath are not God's default mode. He does not even harbor anger towards the righteous. He never has wrath towards the innocent. Those are reserved for people who fall short of the glory of God and sin against him. And that means the anger and wrath of God are eventually going to be expressed and satisfied. So we could talk for a long time today about the patience of God. The fact that he is angry, has anger and wrath, but does not pour it out immediately is very unlike us. So when we read about vengeance in this chapter, what I want us to do is be very careful And this is important because we are in danger when reading about God's vengeance of thinking that God is altogether like us. God is not like us. He is not like you. He is not like me. We might begin to imagine that God is petty or vindictive or that he gets his feelings hurt. That is not what we are learning about God today. As we will see in this text, God's vengeance is earned and deserved by all who experience it. So what is vengeance in the Bible? Let me give you the Caleb Bunch definition. Vengeance is the just response of God against those who have sinned against him. Let's break that down with another question. How does the Bible display vengeance, particularly the vengeance of God? Now, it might have surprised you in my definition that I have limited the biblical definition of vengeance just to God and how he reacts to those who sin against him and not including in that the way that people show vengeance against one another. Well, there's a reason why I limit it to God. I want to show you through brief exploration of the scriptures how I come to this conclusion that this is how we should define the term. Consider first Psalm 94, verses 1 through 2. It says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay the proud for what they deserve. Now, once again, we see that the vengeance of God is always earned. Give them what they deserve. But notice the title, God of Vengeance. If you were to give titles to the Psalms, that would be the title of Psalm 94, God of Vengeance. Think about the nature of the Psalms and consider that for a moment. What are the Psalms? It is a songbook that God himself wrote, and he gave it to the Israelites, saying to them, 
I want you to sing these things about me. And one of the songs that God wrote for them to sing about him, something that pleases him, something that delights his heart when they sing it, is, O God of vengeance. He likes them to call him the God of vengeance. Uh, This concept of God as a vengeful God is one that is actually designed to give him glory and produce joy in his people. And that concept is very challenging, I think, for most of us in the modern church. We who have existed in modern evangelicalism have generally avoided the teaching or preaching concepts like this one. We have avoided these things, and part of the reason we are so weak and joyless and confused when we experience injustice in our life is the fact that we have failed to grasp and grapple with the concept of God as a vengeful God. So in order to see how this concept of vengefulness in God develops in the Scripture, let us first jump all the way back to the very beginning of our Bibles where we first hear the word vengeance. We find it initially in Genesis chapter 4. Now, this is a story that you know very well. Cain and Abel. What happens? Well, you know, Cain kills his brother Abel. And why does he do that? It tells us in 1 John that he kills him because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And so, this is important for many reasons, but one of the reasons this story is important is this. The story of Cain and Abel sets up for us a pattern that continues throughout the Bible. And here's the pattern that we see, not just throughout the Scripture, but even to this very day. We see a pattern that there is a people of God, a people of God that is gentle towards the enemies of God, a people of God that is righteous and acts rightly toward the other people. But the enemies of God are also the enemies of God's people, and they act with hostility towards God's people. Abel did nothing wrong. He did everything right in that sacrificial act. Cain hated that Abel did the right thing, and therefore he killed him. As we make our way through the scripture, we see that those who are righteous are always persecuted by those who are not. And that continues to this day in the church. It is the picture of righteous people being mistreated, harmed, or even killed by the enemies of God. That is the pattern that is set up in Cain and Abel. How do you think the other living people of that day would have responded? Now think about the the fact that there has never been a murder before. We're not even sure if any human being had died before. This might be the first time the curse of death has ever come against a human in the history of the planet. And how do you think everybody else responded that the cause of that death was the hand of this man's brother, likely his own twin? They'd never dealt with this before. And Cain was concerned about what was going to him, and he said, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What is he afraid of? He is afraid of vengeance. And then verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. What did that mark look like? I have no idea. But do you see the point that's being made? When righteous Abel is killed, God does not say to Adam and Eve, Hey, go hunt him down, take those primitive tools that you have, and go cut out his life. Quite the opposite. The Lord went so far as to actually protect Cain. 
to protect his life from the violent response that was possibly coming against him from the other living humans. But that does not mean that Cain was spared from judgment. That does not mean that he never received his punishment. There's no indication that Cain ever repented. In fact, I think quite the opposite. Uh, The New Testament book of 1 John refers to him as a child of the devil. It seems to me that if somebody continues to bear that name, even into the New Testament, it's likely that there was never a time when he actually repented. And because he never sought forgiveness from the Lord, he died in his sins. And so vengeance was not eliminated, it was simply deferred. The point that God was making was that he was the only one that had the right to avenge the blood of Abel. He's the only one that had the right to ultimately show vengeance towards Cain. Now, with that in mind, let's jump forward to the time of Moses. In particular, I want to set your attention on the end of Moses' life. Moses was an interesting man who lived 120 years, and his life kind of breaks down into three easy sections. You have the first 40 years as he is being raised up in Pharaoh's house in Egypt, and then 40 years after he kills the Egyptian, he runs into the the wilderness and he lives in Midian. He gets married. He becomes a shepherd. And then after 40 years there, when he's an 80-year-old man, God sends him back to the people of Israel, where he is then going to lead them out in the Exodus and spend 40 years of his life before his death, shepherding not sheep, but the people of Israel out of Egypt and in toward the promised land. And just before they reached the promised land, he was not permitted to enter and he died. He was not permitted to enter because of his own sin, but what we see at the very end of his life is that he writes the book of Deuteronomy. At the very end of the wilderness wanderings, he pens the book of Deuteronomy so that the people will remember what happened at the beginning of those 40 years. And so he's speaking now to the generation that was raised up, was birthed in the wilderness, grew up in the wilderness, and he speaks to them one final time in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 33. Chapter 33 is a list of blessings that he speaks over all of the different tribes. But chapter 32 is a song, one that he carefully crafted under the inspiration of the Spirit to sing to the people because he wanted them to remember it and to continue to sing it. And so if you look at the Song of Moses in chapter 32, it contains the most important things that he wants them to remember. If I could preach one sermon to you, he says, I'm going to sing you this song. And included in the song, we find a great deal about God's vengeance. And what I would like to do is just make five very brief observations about some of the things he says in this chapter regarding vengeance and God. Observation one, bad fruit. In Deuteronomy 32, 32, we find a description of the work of God's enemies. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. This imagery is very important when it comes to understanding the gospel and chapter 63. Because what does he describe the people as in chapter 63? He describes them as grapes worthy of crushing. And this is actually, uh, this sermon is actually titled The Grapes of Wrath, but this is not the first sermon I have titled that. This is a part two, because in this same series, all the way back in chapter five, I spoke about the wrath of God that was being poured out against the grapes of Israel. There we read in chapter five that they were a 
vine producing not good grapes worthy of turning into anything productive like wine, but rather they were wild grapes that offended him. He said, I've made my garden perfectly. I have planted it. I have plowed it. I've built a wall around it so there will be no wild animals eating anything from it. And what do you do? You still produce wild grapes. And so he says, there will eventually be judgment. I'm going to tear down your walls. I'm going to take away the the watch stand. I'm going to let the wild animals come in and thieves come in and and steal from you. I'm going to let destruction occur to you. And that was a judgment against the old covenant people of God in Israel. And so what we read about that in chapter 5 is that he is now saying, okay, you know those grapes of wrath that I spoke about all the way back through Moses? Those ones that I say are like children of Sodom and Gomorrah? Here's the secret. Sodom and Gomorrah have no children. They're all dead. Everything has been destroyed. But he says, now you guys are just like them. That fruit that they produced is now being produced in you. And so he says, there must be destruction. And now that same imagery is being wrapped back into Isaiah's book at the end of the book in chapter 63. Just to give you a little clue of how the book of Isaiah is operating, he is, it's like an inclusio, which is just where he is repeating the themes in a different way now at the end of the book that he did at the beginning. So he's wrapping back around to those same conceptual ideas. And here he says, so those grapes that deserve destruction in chapter 5, now I'm telling you they, they're going to get it. They're going to receive that vengeance. And so it's interesting that he draws on that from Moses writing in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Second observation from Deuteronomy 32, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He says in chapter 32, 34 through 35, Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? What is he talking about? He's talking about violence, destruction, death. Vengeance is mine and recompense for The time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. If I say that something belongs to me, then I'm necessarily saying it does not belong to you. If I claim ownership over something, I am telling you that is my car, that is my water bottle, it is not yours. I drink my water bottles. It is for me, not for, for you. He says... This is mine. I own this. This is my responsibility, not yours. Vengeance belongs to me. The reason I feel comfortable defining biblical vengeance as exclusively an act of God is because he claims that he is the only one that has the right to it. If anything else or anyone else performs vengeance, then they are overstepping their boundaries. Observation number three, vengeance is always right on time. In those verses that we just read, there's a promise that God's vengeance is swift against his enemies. Now, it doesn't always feel swift from our perspective, but it does from God's perspective. It feels like it's practically immediate from his perspective when you consider that our lives are very brief. They're here and poof, they're gone. They are described in the scriptures as being like tender grass in the hot sun. That's how God looks at you. He says, you're like a blade of grass that pops up in the morning, and when the sun comes out, it fries it. And so you literally last like six hours of the day. Uh, I just had a son, and he's 11. What happened? Time flies. It is swift. It might appear to us that God is moving slowly in vengeance. It might appear to us that God is not working quickly enough on our timetable to do what he is promising to do in being vengeful towards his enemies, but time is irrelevant. Vengeance is always served exactly 
when God intends, and God is never late. Observation four, vengeance is a way that God vindicates his people. Deuteronomy 32, 36, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none to remain bond or free. Do you see the connection between vindication and vengeance? Directly after talking about vengeance, God says, for or because I will vindicate my people. Why am I going to show vengeance? Part of the reason is so that I will vindicate those who actually do follow me. Part of the reason that God has vengeance is to exact justice for his people. Just like the Lord judged Cain for his aggression against Abel, the Lord will exact judgment against all who rise up against the Messiah and the Messiah's people. Observation number five, the chief expression of hatred for God that we see in the world is opposition and hatred for God's people. Deuteronomy chapter 32, 40 through 41. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If God makes a statement like that, you listen. When God makes a statement about swearing about something forever, you pay attention and perk up your ears. He says, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Notice that this entire section of Deuteronomy is speaking out against those who attack God's people. He is giving warning to the Midianites. He is giving warning to the Amorites. He is giving warning to the Perizzites and the Jebusites. He is giving warning to the Canaanites. And he is telling them, if you come against my people, I will draw my sword and I will avenge them. I will destroy those who, quote, hate me. Notice that this entire section is about these other people that don't know who God is. They're not thinking when they're riding their horse towards the cities of Israel, hey, you know what I want to do today? I just want to mock the God of heaven. Most of them are not thinking about Jehovah God at all. They are coming into those places because they want to destroy the Israelites. They want the land. They want the goods. But God says, by attacking them, you are attacking me. God has always paralleled hatred for his people as hatred of himself. That is why it is nonsense when somebody says that they love Jesus, but they don't love the church. Could you imagine if somebody said to you, look, I really enjoy hanging out with you, but I don't really like your spouse. I think we're good friends, maybe best friends, but I hate to say it, I hate your wife. She's repulsive to me. I am bothered whenever I am around her. The sound of her voice is enough to make me feel sick to my stomach. I would rather die than go to your house because I know she's going to be there. Well, I'm sorry. If you say something that, like that about my bride, we are not friends. However, those things that I just listed are mild twists on statements that people have made to me about the church. These are not ideas I have imagined in my own mind. I have had these conversations with people, and likely so have you. People who say, I love God, also will say, but I'm repulsed by the church. I'm bothered whenever I go to a service. The sound of the singing is enough to make my stomach turn. I would rather die than spend Sundays in one of those musty old buildings. One of the tests that God gives through the book of John is to examine ourselves whether we're in the faith. 1 John 3:14. we know that we have passed out of death into life because 
We love the brothers because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. If you do not love the people of God, if you do not love the church, you are, according to the Bible, still dead in your trespasses and sins. You might be wondering why I took this seeming rabbit trail away from the vengeance talk about God, but there's a reason for that. Consider that in Isaiah 63, the Israelites claim to love God, yet he is getting on to them because they do not love each other, and it is a display that they are deserving the wrath of God, and it is a display that they don't truly love God. That's where we find ourselves in Isaiah 63. Which brings us to our third question, what does Isaiah 63 teach us about the impending judgment and vengeance of God? So if you've been holding your place in Isaiah 63, now is the time. Look down to the first six verses again. Let's consider that metaphor that's being used to describe God's judgment. God is going to describe himself here as a warrior who is wearing clothes that are dripping in blood. In verse 2, a bystander asks, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads a winepress? Do you know what that means? Have you ever seen an old-fashioned wine press? It's like, it's like an enclosure, usually made out of stone, sometimes made out of wood. Modern ones are probably made out of rubber or plastic. It's basically a small swimming pool for grapes. And you would take them and you would throw them into this, this area that would probably be between three and four feet tall. And you would fill it up with grapes. And then you would have a person or people take off their shoes and then stomp them to juice. You have a person get inside that would stand inside and crush the life out of them. It was their job to make sure that there was nothing left but ooze. Now consider that for the person uh, who is in there, the person who is crushing those grapes. There's no discomfort for them. In fact, it probably feels cool. It probably feels nice for that person the, the grapes provide no resistance. They inflict no harm on the person who is stomping them. But for the grapes, it's a different story. They are pulverized by the unstoppable force of a powerful person that is exponentially larger and stronger than they are. A grape can't fight back. It is powerless beneath the weight of the one who's going to crush it. And that is Isaiah's point. The Lord is describing the coming day of judgment this way in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Wow. That is the depiction of God's vengeance. When is this going to happen? Well, according to Revelation 14, this will occur as part of the judgment when the Lord is bringing all things on earth to a conclusion. It says in that book, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, let me do the conversion ratio here for you. That in indicates that the blood of the people will be five feet deep and cover roughly 184 square miles. Now, personally, I understand that this not to be literal, but a figurative way to say that God is going to harshly judge his enemies. But if you look back to Isaiah 63, it further explains in verses 4 through 6, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, 
and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Okay, let's hit the pause button for a moment and just see that there's a lot going on here regarding Uh, the people of Israel in the Old Testament and their relationship to the Lord. And I'm not going to cover that thoroughly. In fact, most of the rest of this chapter, I'm not going to consider very deeply or at all this morning because much of what we are going to see is brought about through chapter 64 where it speaks of the false repentance of the peoples. At this time, what we're going to do is we're going to enter a time both of application of our text as well as preparation for the Lord's Supper that will take place directly after the sermon. So I want to consider now a few applications that I think you can take away from what we are hearing that will be very beneficial to you. First, do not pursue vengeful acts. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now I have no doubt that you have legitimate reasons for desiring vengeance. I have No doubt that people have done things that hurt you, that people have lied about you, that people have committed acts of emotional and even physical damage to you. But there is one way to handle that correctly. There are millions of ways that you can handle it incorrectly, but there is one way that you can result that, uh, pursue a righteous outcome for that. And there is a way that the Lord makes abundantly clear, and that is to go to him appropriately, trusting that he will balance the scales of earthly and eternal justice through perfect vengeance. All you will do is make it worse if you try to avenge yourself. You cannot do that properly without sin. Every time you try to avenge yourself, you bring into it your pride, your hatred, your malevolence, but when God performs vengeance, he does so flawlessly and in a holy way. Instead of carrying out what we perceive to be a fitting punishment, it is God who perceives what is actually an accurate punishment. And trust me, his punishments are far worse than the ones that you would give. You can guarantee that his punishment will not only be perfectly timed, but will be perfectly fitting. So do not avenge yourselves. Secondly, and this goes deeper, do not store up vengeful thoughts. Now, there's something far beyond just the act of vengeance that we need to consider. I want us to drill down to the heart, because likely, you're like me. You're a person that would never do something physically or verbally. You will not act out in vengeance, but you will harbor things in your heart. Most likely, you are the type who would never lift a finger to harm someone, but you would fantasize about it. You plot and you scheme acts of revenge that you know you won't carry out, but you get some kind of pleasure in imagining forms of discomfort for those who have harmed you. You delight in the idea of their downfall. Well, brothers and sisters, consider the horrific description of wrath and God's judgment that we read earlier. Realize that hell is way worse than being crushed by a grape. The recompense of the Lord is a fate that you should never wish on anyone. It is truly disturbing that our culture has become so quick to throw around phrases like, go to hell. Do not say that to people. Do not speak of people in that way. Why? That's not an insult. That is the greatest curse you can imagine. If you have even a small understanding of the weight of God's wrath, then you would never wish that upon even your worst of enemies. 
So when your heart begins to dwell upon vengeance, what, what should you do? Cry out to the Lord to show mercy to those that have sinned against you. Consider the very Son of God. Consider how he responded on the cross. He was surrounded by wicked men and wicked women who were performing the greatest sin ever committed. They were crucifying the Lord of glory. They were taking the one who created them and destroying him. He had the power to end their lives in that very moment, but he did not. He had the power, and he could have used it to crush them in that instant. He could have had the angels deliver him from the cross and then fight his enemies to the death. Instead, he cried out that they would be forgiven. There will come a day when Jesus will return in judgment. But here at the cross, Jesus displays for us the perfect heart of a person who has been wronged, but does not delight in the destruction or downfall of his enemies. Father, forgive them. If you are battling a vengeful heart, then you've not looked closely enough at Christ. If you are harboring thoughts of revenge against someone, then you have not looked closely enough at the Savior. You have not yet been set free from the bondage of a worldview that can only see to the end of this life. The Lord is calling us to think more deeply about the eternal state of the person that has wronged you. Think about that individual with loving compassion. That is how you can pray for those who persecute you. That is how you can love your enemies. When they do something against you, know that it would be far better for you to experience some temporary displeasure and then them to still come and know the grace of God than for you to get some kind of temporary satisfaction and for them to experience eternal damnation. So seek for their good. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Thirdly, run to the Lord who is mighty to save. Now so far this morning, we've focused a lot on the vengeance of God, but that's certainly not the point of the text. That is just the precursor to the point of the text. That's the backdrop. That's the, the necessary thing that you put on the canvas before you put the main thing on the canvas. The point is that you and I are fully deserving of the vengeance of God and that every sin we have ever committed has been like an arrow that we have drawn back and released and loosed at the heart of God himself. Notice how the Lord is introduced in Isaiah 63. Before the blood-stained clothing and before the description of crushing his enemies, the Lord first describes himself and says, It is I, speaking righteousness, mighty to save. He then begins talking about judgment and vengeance and crushing you like a grape. And then he, but he starts out by saying, I am mighty to save. I am mighty to save. Now, if you were only in minor danger, you do not need a mighty savior. If you were capable of saving yourself, you would not need a mighty savior. If your sin was no big deal, you would not need a mighty savior. If you were a pretty good person in the eyes of God, you would not need a mighty savior. But as it stands, mankind is unified in its desperate state because every last person that has ever lived is deserving of the unending wrath of God. But he is a mighty Savior. Verses 7 through 9 describe him this way. I will recount the steadfastness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, all of that undeserved. Everything he just described about himself, undeserved. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. That is a beautiful thing. These people who broke my laws 
it says he became their savior. Verse 9, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. In all of their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. Do you see the substitutionary act of God? In all of their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them, indicating from their affliction. I take the affliction away from you so that you experience it no more. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, it continues. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now, if you are in this room and have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are still standing in the dangerous place of, at any moment, ending your life and standing before the judgment seat of God. There will come a day when you must answer for everything that you have ever said or done or even thought. It's like right now, if you don't know Christ, that you're walking a tightrope over hell itself. And one day that rope will break and your life will end. And if you have not yet been saved, you will certainly fall to your eternal destruction. But there is a mighty Savior, one who has come to take the affliction, the punishment, the vengeance for his people upon himself. And the gospel is all about substitution. The good news is that Jesus takes our place. Now my debt is paid. It's paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. The curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. If you are in Christ, it was finished upon that cross. Fourth point, very similarly, rejoice in the Lord if you have been spared. Every single sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed is a sin worthy of God's vengeance. Just think for a moment the first sin that my children typically display in an ongoing perennial fashion is that they have a tendency to sneak into food when they're not supposed to. We will find them in the middle of the night getting into the refrigerator or into the cabinets. We have to begin finding ways to hide the, the snacks and the treats because they will locate them. Well, think about what happened in the garden. You might think that's not a big deal. That's a small sin. What happened in the garden? There's a piece of food that you're not supposed to eat. Don't go to that tree. Don't eat that food. They snuck a piece of food like my two-year-olds do. And yet that was enough. That one sin was enough to plunge the entire human race forever into the curse of sin. Justfully and rightfully, God condemned the human race because somebody took a piece of fruit now, that means we underestimate the horrific nature of our own sin. We don't acknowledge that God is holy. We consider him less, and we consider ourselves more holy than we are. And by doing so, we try to even the scales a bit in our perception. But the only result that is accurate and right in order for cosmic justice to occur is that God must punish sin. We know that we are deserving of that sin. We know that God must destroy those in judgment who have committed these acts. But the reality for the Christian is that every sin you've ever committed, if you are in him, it was finished. It has been paid. And now the only result that we can have is to delight in the mercy of God. The sins that you have committed, he has taken them upon his own shoulders and he has paid for them at the cross, experiencing our vengeance, our affliction. So one of the ways that God has intentionally designed for us to do this 
One of the ways that he is designed for us to remember and bring our attention back to the cross, remember the wrath of God that was poured out on his only son, to remember that he took the vengeance that we earned, is to come together before the table of God as we gather. To come together before the Lord's Supper and to enjoy this meal, seeing the bread and seeing the juice that are symbolic representations of his body and blood broken and poured out for us. His son took the misery so that we might have the mercy. Remember that you were deserving of that grape, being crushed at the judgment, but God instead crushed his own son at the cross. It's important for me to give some clarification about who should come to this table, because the scripture is very clear that those who do not have a saving relationship to him should not come to this table. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, thank you for coming. I am glad that you're here. Friend, thank you for joining us today. I ask that you do observe with your eyes, see what we are about to do, and I would ask that you consider the nature of the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners like you and me. But I would ask that today you do not partake of the table because the Bible says to do so would be to eat and drink judgment to yourself. But I would say to those who know him, If you are living in unrepentant sin, sin that you have hidden from others, sin that you are unwilling to let go of, it's possible that that is an indication that you are simply loving something other than you are loving God. It might be an indication that you don't know God at all. And in that case, likewise, according to the Scripture, I would say to you, please do not partake today unless you first repent before the Lord. The way that we are going to approach the table is that in just a moment I'm going to ask those who are serving the music team.